Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Before we get to today's show, can you take care of something for us? Please rate and review Health Now in your podcast platform of choice. It will help other listeners find out about us. And if you haven't already, be sure you subscribe to the show too. You wouldn't want to miss an episode, would you? Thank you. Okay, now on to the show. Imagine being told that something was wrong with your heart, so wrong that you were going to need a heart transplant right away. Our guest today, Dr. Aline Grigosian, has gone through that. It happened suddenly at the end of 2018. A condition called dilated cardiomyopathy struck while she was training to be an ER doctor. With dilated cardiomyopathy, the heart muscle starts to stretch and become thinner and enlarged, which makes it harder for the heart to work properly. Dr. Gergosian had had symptoms, but at first it seemed mild. Things got worse, and she found out that she had a heart condition she never knew she had. It was an emergency, and she got her new heart on January 15, 2019. She's back in her training as an ER doctor, and she's also a passionate advocate for organ donation. She writes about what she went through on her blog called A Change of Heart, and also penned an essay about it for the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. On her heart anniversary, a year after the procedure, she wrote that during this journey she's felt grateful, helpless, bitter, amazed, isolated, inspired, and loved, among other things. And the experience of becoming a patient is also shaping her take on being a doctor. Listen in on our conversation on going to the brink of death and coming back with a new life, and as she puts it, a recycled heart. Dr. Gregosian, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us what happened and tell us, if you can, um, about the condition that brought this on for you. It was fall of 2018. I had cold-like symptoms. It was what I thought was just like a virus that we all have once in a while, especially when you're working in the emergency department all the time. I had a cough and I had some congestion. I always have congestion because I have really bad allergies. And, uh, and I had a cough and none of this was really going away. Um, the cold actually went away, but the cough persisted throughout like about a month, the month of November, end of October, the month of November. And then what started to happen in the beginning of December of 2018 was that I not only had the cough, but I started getting really short of breath. And the shortness of breath was what started to concern me. Not enough that I wasn't going to work or I wasn't like going out with my friends or anything. Um, and looking back, I did have some other symptoms too. Like I remember I was really tired all the time and that's not really like me. Um, I'm somebody who can, you know, just not drink caffeine. I, I need just like maybe six hours of sleep and I'm good to go for the whole day. But I remember I was like drinking two or three Red Bulls a day and I was just more tired than usual. But I just thought... I was just being a resident, you know, we're all tired all the time. Um, yeah, that seems pretty par for the course for your line exactly. of work at least. And, and I felt bad for complaining about that. But other than those two symptoms and and the shortness of breath was there, but it wasn't that bad. Um, but towards the middle of December was when it got really bad. And one of my attending doctors noticed that it was getting bad. And she told me to actually get a chest x-ray done because of it. And um, this was right before Christmas time. So I remember I promised her that I would get it. And uh, I I think I, I ended up calling primary care office or I was like looking into it. But because it was right before Christmas, everything was closed. I didn't have time in my schedule because we were on like a Christmas schedule or something. And and so I was kind of like, I'll put it off another couple weeks. It, I Again, it wasn't that bad. But within 
from the day that she told me to get a chest x-ray and then within 48 hours, things got so bad that I decided to go to the emergency department, to my own emergency department. But, you know, I went not as a doctor, but I went as a patient. That must have been a little strange. It was. It it wasn't the first time that I had gone as a patient, but it was the first time that I went as a really sick patient, Um, not realizing that I was that sick. But I remember walking in and a lot of my co-residents and my attendings had just seen me, you know, the day before, two days before, three days before, kind of looking at me. And I remember they said something like, you know, your lips are blue and you look really pale. Why are you breathing like that? Something is absolutely wrong with you. And that scared me. But I didn't. And and I think deep inside, I probably knew something was really wrong. But I was really um, stubborn. And I was like, well, I have to work tomorrow. Can we just, you know, get get a chest x-ray and I want to get out of here. And um, we got a chest x-ray and the chest x-ray looked really weird. Uh, it looked like possibly like a strange pneumonia. I mean, looking back, it looked like it might have been heart failure. However, in a 30-year-old who's completely healthy, why would she have heart failure? So we weren't really thinking along the lines of heart failure. And so we were thinking maybe a pneumonia, but we weren't really sure. And so because of that, I was admitted to the hospital to get a further workup. You know, we're going to get an echo on me. We're going to figure out what was going on. But we weren't that worried. I mean, at least... We had a possible diagnosis of pneumonia. And I forgot to mention that there were a couple other residents who had pneumonia during all this. So uh. we were like, maybe I had caught thing. Yeah. So while I was hospitalized, this was just, I don't remember exactly the time, but I went up to the floors. I was not in the emergency department anymore. Um, I was on the floors. This was a few hours after I got admitted. I just remember um, I got really sweaty and I started feeling really sick in my stomach. Um, I was having like tunnel vision and there was ringing in my ears and I looked up at my monitor and my heart rate was in the thirties. And what normally it should be what in the normally 60 to a hundred. And I had, I came to the ER with it being in the one thirties. So there was absolutely something wrong with me because it had been so high. Wow. And so, yeah. And so my heart rate shot down to like 30, 20. And so by that time, they had called what we call rapid response in the hospital, um, which means like a patient is rapidly deteriorating. And a whole bunch of nurses and doctors came into the room. Were you, were you still conscious for all of this? I don't remember it. No, I wasn't. Um, I think they were like trying to find a pulse on me to get uh, an arterial stick. So they were trying to find, um, I just like, I, I barely had a pulse. Um, I think I I remember the last thing I heard because they were trying to get the defibrillator pads on my chest um, just in case they needed to shock me. And um, the last thing I remember is I was so sweaty that they weren't able to. And somebody said something along the lines of, should we turn this into a code? And I think that's like the worst thing you could possibly hear. So tell us what, was, what exactly that means for people who may that not means know. That means like, like, is it like she's about to die? Should we just turn this into oh a code? Gosh. blue? Yeah, <laughs> I think. And everybody asked me, like, what does it feel like to almost die? Like, did you see a light? Did, and I, I don't I remember everything going on around me. I don't remember what was being said, but I remember like an overwhelming feeling of like peace in my head. And I remember thinking, um, like whatever needs to happen will happen. And I remember being very like trusting of everybody. And I remember thinking like, I I had just a very calm, 
mindset. I don't know what I was doing outwardly. Um, I, I was unconscious, but that's what it felt like. And I woke up a couple days later because I'd gone into a coma. They put they put me into a medically induced coma. I should put it like that. And uh, I had a tube in my mouth because they had to intubate me, put me on a breathing machine to breathe. And uh, that's when they told me basically, or, you know, around that time, they told me that I needed, I was in heart failure and this was not the lungs at all. This was not pneumonia. Wow. Did that surprise you or did you kind of put two and two together at that point? I think at that, so at that point, looking back, I mean, I was so, it's so hard to remember exactly my thought process, but I think at that point, I might've been like, you know, there is a family history of this because there is. And, um, but I still thought that like, all right, heart failure, like we can just give me some medications and I can get out of here. Like this is, you know, this is treatable because, you know, heart failure doesn't always mean, rarely doesn't mean transplant. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. transplant is very, is like the worst of the worst cases get a transplant. So I remember thinking like, oh, you know, my dad has cardiomyopathy, but you know, we never, maybe, maybe I have what he has, but his was never genetic. What is this? I remember maybe thinking like that, but but I, in my head, I was like, all right, we found out what was going on. I just need some Lasix and I need some medications and I can get out of here. But um, they had to take me to the cath lab, you know, where they go to check your heart and your arteries and stuff. And um, when they took me there, I just remember the numbers that they were screaming out to uh, what, like the, the, the numbers that they were measuring and like yelling out to, to jot down. They were terrible. It was like they were checking my cardiac index, which was 1.1 and, and normal, like to live is like above two. Again, that's, that's barely to live. Wow. So yeah. And I remember like in my head thinking like, I remember from med school, one is probably not viable. Like, you know, that's probably not a good number. So, um, we go back to my room after this cath. And I remember by that, cause my parents are from Los Angeles. So they had to fly in and I had my friends there and I had my family there. And the doctor said something like, all right, well, this was all at, um, in Philadelphia's at Hahnemann hospital before it shut down. And the, the cardiologist came in and said, you know, we have to send her to another hospital that has a uh, advanced heart failure measures. And I remember thinking, I was like, what does that even mean? Advanced heart failure measures. That's interesting. Um, I mean, cause you're a doctor and you would know, you know, some of these yeah. numbers, you know, here yeah, the numbers in yeah. the cath lab, you know what that means and you yeah. know, how maybe that made it scarier for you. But to yeah. hear something that you weren't familiar with must have no, been pretty no. alarming. Yeah. And again, I was like, this can't, I, I think I, I mean, I knew that it was bad, but I didn't realize how serious until like those words came out. And then I realized like what he meant by that was like, probably I would need a, like a balloon pump or an LVAD, which is like mechanical um, support for your heart. And then, so he said the words, he said, you know, it's, it's a place where in case she doesn't get better with medications, there's always backup and they're able to give her mechanical support. And in case that doesn't work, at least they'll have transplants. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa, wait a minute. What? And I still didn't, I was like, no, this is going to get better with medications. This is going to get better. This, I see this all the time. I see like, there's no way mine's that bad. Um, eventually I got transferred to the university of Pennsylvania. Uh, and 
things just weren't looking good. And I remember by maybe within like a week after, cause I was on medications and like things just were going, were getting worse and worse and worse. And by then I, I knew what was going on. Um, I'm actually going into critical care medicine and I had like my critical care book with me and I was reading up on all these things. And I knew that I, things weren't looking good. You know, I became anemic. My kidney function was going up. My heart numbers were going down. And I knew before they told me that I was going to need a transplant. Um, so I knew it was pretty definitive. How, did, how did that make you feel? Initially, I, I was kind of in disbelief. But I knew, I, I also knew this, I knew that with a transplant, with a heart transplant, I would be able to go back to living my normal life. I would have the best quality of life, right? Like, have had I just had heart failure with the heart that I had and had, had tried to live with that, I would have need like IV pumps 24-7 and like I wouldn't have been able to go back to, you know, exercising. I wouldn't have been able to go back to being a doctor, I would have probably just, you know, if, if I had refused a heart transplant and an LVAD and everything, then I would have just been on palliative, you know, I would have just died. I knew that the, the heart transplant was going to just give me the best quality of life that I could have gotten to let me go back to where I was at that point in my life, which is where I basically am right now. Um, so I was in disbelief but I was okay with it. At that point, I remember thinking the following. I remember thinking like, okay, this is the situation that's been given to me and I can complain and I can hate it and I can hate myself and I can hate, you know, I can hate my dad for having this gene and I can, I can blame everybody and I can, I can, you know, hate myself for not going to the doctor earlier and I can do this, but like, that's not going to change anything. Like that, like, it's, it, it's not going to change anything going forward. So I came to terms with all of that and I came to peace with myself and I said, let's just go forward from here and let me just get this transplant and let's just make the most of it. And I remember like thinking like that. That's a long way to go from, I mean, that's so many emotions to process yeah, um, yeah, along with, yeah. you know, the, the medical knowledge of what was going on in your body. That's, that's a lot. I think it, it helped me too, like knowing the medical stuff, it, it kind of, made everything more, um, like everything was more direct and like, like I knew everything already. So it, it helped, in my opinion, it helped me come to terms with everything. And you were so healthy before, before, yeah. you know, you, you felt like you might've just, you know, had a cold. It, you were able to just sort of chalk it up to that instead of thinking, gee, maybe I have a chronic condition that's going on. So how long were you on the wait list for a new heart? And how did you deal with that during the, during the waiting time? Did you ever think I might not get one or there might not be a heart available for me in time? Yeah, that was scary. Um, I waited for 11 days, which a lot of people are like, wow, like that's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but it also means that I was very sick. Right. Um, so it was awesome. Like <laughs> When I tell people there's, a, there's actually like a campaign in New York that, um, about like organ donation. And one of their billboards says like, you know, can't wait for the weekend, try waiting for like a life-saving organ. And that's, <laughs> and I love that because like it puts so much into perspective because every morning I would wake up and I would be like happy that I was still alive. If that could, if I can, if I can ever 
like nobody will understand what that feeling is like because I, every night I would go to sleep like hoping that I would wake up the next day. That was what I was going through. There would be nights where I remember that my numbers weren't looking good and we would have to like add medications or like, you know, I wasn't feeling good. I became short of breath and sometimes I needed to get fluid out of my lungs because the, you know, there were, there were times where things were getting worse and those were the nights where I would be like, okay, well I might die tonight and hopefully the heart will come sooner rather than later. But that is but it, terrifying. It, Gosh, well, that is was so terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody will understand that unless you're ever in that situation. And I don't want anybody to be in that situation. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So a lot of people, they might have an image of heart transplants from TV or movies, right? Like a doctor's running through the hospital with a heart in a cooler on ice. But is that what really happens in these kinds of procedures? So <laughs> I had to ask. So I had to ask one of the nurses, Caitlin, this and because so there are different ways that they do this. And University of Pennsylvania, and there's like something called heart in a box where they actually keep the heart pumping um, on the way after like a procurement on the way to the hospital. But at HUP, uh, and most of the time, um, actually, they actually like literally put it in a cooler and they bring it to the hospital, which I was aware <laughs> I was exaggerating, but wow, that was, <laughs> sounds yeah, like that's, that's pretty that's, accurate. It's very, it's very humbling to know that like, that's how medicine is still done. So yeah, that's actually, um, and, and we call that like the ischemic time. So it's from the time that the organ is taken out from the, the organ donor to the time that it's put into the recipient um, is the, the ischemic times, so the time that it has no blood supply. Um, and sometimes that actually helps with prognosis of how long that heart's going to be good, you know, good for in a patient. Wow. Interesting. So after your procedure, what was the recovery like? You obviously, you have to take lots of medications to be sure that your body is not going to reject the new organ um, and you're recovering just from the surgery itself. Um, what was What was that like for you? So recovery was interesting. Recovery has two parts to it, right? Like the phys there's a physical aspect and there's a mental aspect. You're on very high doses of prednisone initially, and you're on all these new medications that are messing with your stomach. Um, you're on all sorts of anti-rejection medications that have all sorts of side effects. Prednisone has all sorts of side effects. I mean, anything from like I remember I was sweating so much. I had like hot flashes all the time. Every night I would go to sleep with like three sets of clothes next to me because I would have to change that many times. That's how much I was sweating every night. Wow. Um, yeah. And I remember like, you know, you have so much weight gain and then you have like mood swings. So like you have to get used to all that. But I remember I kept telling myself like, it's just part of the process. It's part of the process. It's all going to go away. Um, and eventually it does. It really does. Like within the first six months, things slowly go away. And then within a year, you're pretty much all the side effects are, there is like one or two that they're always, you know, you have like nausea once in a while, but that's about it. Um, the recovery initially physically was difficult for me because I had been in the hospital from the day that I got super sick to the day that I left, which was post-op day nine was exactly about a month. So I hadn't really like exercised. I mean, I would get up to walk around the hospital, but I hadn't really like done much more than that. And I, and you know, your muscles really do get deconditioned. So I had so much trouble with, I remember it hurt to even like take steps. 
like hurt so, your hurt your legs or your legs, joints? Just, yep, your whole body and your legs and everything to the point where I remember I went to the emergency room the first week that I was discharged because I was in so much pain. And I and it's interesting because you know I never realized that was actually like it, you really your body really does get deconditioned. So, but I had a physical therapist come out to my apartment, and luckily I live in like a high rise that has a gym. So my physical therapist basically became like my athletic trainer. Wow. <laughs> so started out with like very small exercises, and then I, within a month I was jogging, which was great. That's and amazing. A month. Yeah. That's yeah. Seem, doesn't yeah. seem like a lot of time to go from a new heart to jogging with it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was awesome. I was like cycling very, very slowly, but like, you know, it was still an accomplishment. The other thing was that, you know, because I was so healthy and everything was fine before, the recovery process was a lot easier. You know, if, if you have a chronic condition for several years, the recovery process is a little more difficult. But um, that's why it was a little bit different on my end, just because everything happened so quickly for me. The recovery was also a little quicker, I think. That makes sense. It wouldn't always be like that. Uh, it would obviously be very different for somebody with a different health condition. Right, right. Do you know much about the person who was your heart donor? Uh, or is that even an option if you did want to know more about them? I know a little bit. They, The family sent me one letter. I can't say much about it. I, I can tell you that she she was a, a young woman um, from, you know, close to the area. I know a little bit about her. Everything in, in the state of Pennsylvania, and it might be nationwide. I'm not sure if it's state to state or if it's like a nation thing, but or if it's a national thing, but um, everything is basically up to the donor's family. So if they want to know more about me, they can ask. If they want to meet, you know, it's up to them. So, but I would love to know more. I would love to meet them. I'm open to all of that. Yeah, that's very, I can't imagine. I mean, that must be a very difficult thing on their side. Absolutely. Hopefully you'll be able to to learn more one day if it's if everything is everything is all right. Absolutely, absolutely. So how are you doing today? Do you still have are you still taking medications? Do you still have any physical side effects from this ordeal? I do I so I still take medications. It's um significantly less number of meds that I take. I basically take the two anti-rejection medications, which are like the main things that I take. And then there's like a couple of blood pressure meds and aspirin. And I take like a multivitamin. That's basically all I take. Whereas before it was like, I don't know, I think it was like 35 medications that I was taking. Wow. Um, It's been about a year, we should note. It's been about a year since you were, since you got your transplant. Exactly. Yeah. A year. Um, And as far as side effects go, there's here and there, like, I think the one thing that I still have trouble with, um, and I think that goes with any medication, especially something that's so strong is like, you have to always take it with food or else I'll I'll get nauseous here and there. There's always like GI side effects like that. Sometimes there's like insomnia. I get, I get migraine headaches from the tacrolimus, which I take, sometimes I have to take like a migraine medication for. So there's like little things like that, but nothing that I can't work around. Um, it's definitely much better to have those side effects than to be dead. If that, if that helps. And people, people are always, Boy, that's asking, true. Oh. Yeah, people are always like, Oh my God, that sucks that, you know, that you get migraines. And I'm like, yeah, but it's way better than like the other option. So it's fine. I don't mind. <laughs> when you consider the alternative, it's not so bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we've talked a little bit about the emotions you were feeling when you were feeling when you were very sick, when you learned you needed a heart transplant. Um, now that you're sort of a year out from the whole experience, do you still deal with the emotional side of things or, or 
what helps you keep going? I do. Um, I think initially I was a lot more emotional. I think it was, there was a lot more getting used to it initially, but as time went on. So, so here I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you like this. Like, there are times where I'll, I'll still, I still can't believe that I have a heart transplant, but overall uh, it's something that I've gotten used to. So like it is, so I always tell people it's a big, it's a big part of my life, but it isn't my life. Um, so I don't try to, you know, make it the center of everything. Now, given the fact that like, I'm, you know, there's a blog about it, I talk about organ donation, I talk about it all the time, but I want to make sure that like, you know, people realize that it's not the only thing about me. So that's a, that's a major, major thing that I have to always remind myself that like, you know, there's still a, like a side of me that's not the heart transplant. Like it, the heart transplant is just a, a part of me and, and I'm still myself. I still have my own, I'm still myself, the person that I was before it all happened to. You also have such a unique perspective on this because you are a doctor who became mm-hmm. a patient in a fairly dramatic way. How do you think that is shaping who you are in your medical career? It's been really interesting going back. So I see patients. So I I went back to work about five months after, and uh, I started seeing patients about, I want to say nine months after. Um, And uh, it was really, (laughs) it was really interesting. So the fact that, so, so everything happened to me and like the most ironic part of it all is that like, I'm an ER doctor, you know, and I want to go into critical care. So everything that happened to me is all the stuff that I see all the time and, and the stuff that I'm interested in. And so I see, you know, I, so, so like I got central lined and I've been, I was intubated and, um, you know, I see patients in cardiac arrest all the time. So it's almost like the sickest of the sickest patients was everything that I went through. So, so at least once a day, I deal with a patient who's probably, who's going through what I've already been through. I don't tell every patient, but you know, there are patients that I share, share it with and and they do appreciate it. I think it's made me very, um, and I don't think, I definitely don't think that a doctor needs to go through this to become a good doctor. And I say that a million times a day, but I do think that, um, it's, it's made me very empathetic empathy. I mean that I can literally like feel what my patients are going through with certain things. For example, this patient, um, had come in once with, uh, something called like ventricular tachycardia. So he had like this crazy heartbeat and um, he was feeling so uncomfortable. And and I totally know what that felt like. And and I remember I tried to make him as like comfortable as possible. And afterwards I was talking to him a little bit and I told him, I said something like, you know, I know what that feels like. And he's like, there's no way you know what that feels like. That's the worst feeling in the world. And I was like, no, no, no. I know what that feels like. And he really appreciated it. He was like, Oh my God, you do know. And I told him my story. And so I'm definitely like, it's just interesting having that connection with people. I I read Mm -hmm. your essay in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, and you Mm -hmm. talked very poignantly about even remembering the little things like, you know, your patient's throat is going to be sore when they've been intubated or, you know, they need a warm blanket when they're in the cath lab or or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. The little things that that, um, would make patients feel I guess a little more at ease or just that you knew where they were coming from. Yeah, actually, but absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about organ donation. Um, it obviously saves lives. It saved your life. Um, what do you see as the hangups though, as to why pe- some people may hesitate to, you know, volunteer to, for, to be an organ donor, or they may just put it off. 
Um, or they just decide, you know, this is not for me. I don't, I'm not interested in being an organ donor. So I, after going through what I went through, I started like advocating for organ donation. And I realized that like the one thing that people, that keeps people from becoming organ donors is always, they always say this. They always say, I've heard that if I'm an organ donor, like the doctor won't save my life. And it's interesting because I'm an ER doctor. So I'm actually the doctor who, like, I'm, I'm part of the team that is saving people's lives all the time. So I'm the one that people probably are, you know, hesitant of. And so being, being, um, being an advocate now, I'm always telling people, I'm like, listen, I'm like, that is absolutely not true. That is against any sort of, you know, any sort of oath we've ever taken. And in fact, even if that were true, like even if there was a doctor or nurse that wanted to do that, nobody even knows whether or not someone's an organ donor. It's, it's not, it's not like we look at someone's ID the second that they come in. Um, like, so, so I try to always tell people, I'm like, you have to realize like, that's not even something that goes through our heads when we're trying, like, even, even if, I mean, I mean, the first thing that we always, we're always going to do is save a life. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, it, nothing else matters at that point. So we always try to save a life. And I'm, and I think that's like the one thing that gets people is that they think that if they are, then they're automatically not going to be saved. And I always try to point it out and say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm an ER doctor. Like I can tell you right now that that is not true, but I do tell my story. And, and it's really interesting because after telling my story, uh, so many people have, um, have told me like, Hey, you know, after I heard your story, I actually went and I signed up to become an organ donor. And I'm like, if I could even do that with my story, that's enough for like, <laughs> like if, if I can even just get like one person to sign up to become an organ donor, that's enough. So it's really important to become an organ donor. There's so many people waiting on the waiting list and there's some people who die. I personally know people who've died on the waiting list. Young people, people, all every, I mean, so many, so many people die on the waiting list every single day. So it's something that, you know, is not that difficult to do. So. Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, legacy to be able to just inspire people to even consider it or take that step. That's wonderful. Yeah. I think one other important thing um, I like to point out with my story is the importance of, uh, especially because it's February, so it's a heart month this month. I was a very like atypical case of somebody with heart disease. We're usually taught in medical school that, you know, elderly uh, males are the only people who can get heart disease. And I was not the typical picture of somebody who would have some sort of like heart failure, cardiomyopathy, or some sort of heart disease. And so if you're ever having symptoms and you're doubting yourself or you're unsure, it's always important to go to the doctor, whether you're like a young female or not. So I like to point that out with my story. And it's, it's always important to advocate for yourself, no matter your age or gender. Dr. Aline Gregosian, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. Are you already signed up as an organ donor? Then you'll want to use our tweak of the week. Tell your family in the event something ever happens to you. They can help make sure your wishes are honored. If you're not signed up, or you're not sure if you are, that's easy to take care of too. Go to organdonor.gov and click on sign up. Then you'll select the state where you live and be guided through your state registry process online. You'll need your driver's license or photo ID number to get started. You can even specify what you do or don't want to donate. Let your family know about that, too. 
That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you join us next time. <laughs>